Mark chapter 8, we're considering verses 27 into chapter 9, verse 13. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, And led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. A brief prayer. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Our God and Father, we do pray that you, in this moment, by the ministry and work of your Spirit, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law, that you would unite our hearts 
that we might fear your name, and that in doing so, you would satisfy us with your presence, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sir Ernest Shackleton, perhaps not a household name for many, but he was a polar explorer who led three expeditions across the Antarctic from 1900 to about 1917. His most famous attempt was the crossing of the Antarctic from sea to sea, where his ship, the Endurance, ended up being captured, trapped in the polar ice. Although there's some uncertainty as to Shackleton being the original author of this advertisement, the story goes that he posted the following message in the London Times prior to this departure, reading, Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. There's something refreshing about hearing an advertisement like that, especially in a day and age that we live in, where most everything advertised has been so overly polished with marketing and glossy spin that how often we're promised only the best and never the worst. Such an announcement like Shackleton's eliminates any fuzziness of, just what am I signing up for anyways? It's blatantly clear as to what is being expected and what is being put forward. But what about our following of Jesus? What does it mean for our lives when we consider coming after him? What does it mean really to be a follower of this Jesus? The answer to that question depends upon our understanding of which Jesus you're following. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And everything in Mark's gospel has been really ushering towards this portion of scripture that is before us. It is the the Grand Canyon of, of Mark's gospel. Everything leading up to this and everything proceeding after this. And it all ushers toward this one great question that Christ asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is the most significant because he puts his finger on the very authority of Jesus, the very identity of Jesus. You are the Christ. And if we're not clear, that's not his last name. That is his title. It means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. It's the given title to the one anointed, the promised one, the rescuer who would deliver God's people and establish God's kingdom. You are that one. You are the Christ. The question remains, though, what kind of Messiah is he? Well, what sort of deliverance do you need? Those are the questions that go hand in hand. And what sort of Christ do you imagine him to be? That question and the answer to that question sits at the heart of Mark's gospel. And the answer to that question opens up the very reason why which Christ has come. And in doing so, it clarifies what we are called to as his followers. And So as we consider this portion of scripture that's before us this morning, we are meant to see that the themes of suffering and glory not only define Christ and his mission but our own lives as we seek to follow after him. Suffering and glory reveal to us who Christ is, and by implication, who we are. So let's consider how this works itself out in the passage before us. 
First, as we consider the necessity of suffering and weakness. Notice the necessity of suffering and weakness. And that's central to everything Jesus has been teaching, both here in chapter 8 and in all of Scripture, is this importance of the necessity of suffering. And look how Mark lays this out there in verse 31. What we see is that if he is the Christ, then he must suffer. If he is the Christ, he must suffer. And notice how at the heart of what Jesus began to teach there in verses 31 through 33, it revolves around this label, this title, this name, the Son of Man. He began to teach them. The image of the Son of Man is not new. It's not something that Jesus invented on the spot. It's something rather that he takes up and holds up to answer this question, who do you say that I am? And what kind of Christ am I? This image of the Son of Man, it goes back really to the book of Genesis. It goes back to a promise that God made. It wasn't just a promise, really, that God made directly just into thin air, but it was a declaration, something that he said to the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and in the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and And her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise made. And from that moment on, the people of God are watching. They're literally waiting for the Son of Man. The promised offspring who would be the serpent killer. The one who would restore what God had said was good. God's people are waiting for this one. Literally, the Son of Man, the offspring who would come. And as we keep reading in our scriptures from Genesis onward, the anticipation continues to build each time this promise is restated or it's clarified. It's promised through Moses. It's foreshadowed through all of these Old Testament priestly rituals. It's foretold directly in prophecy. It's anticipated through every annual feast and celebration And the people of God, we are waiting for the one to come. We are waiting for the Son of Man. We are waiting for the Christ. We are waiting for the promised Deliverer. And this image of the Son of Man coming in glory, ruling in righteousness, it's most explicitly seen in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Through Daniel's prophecy, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, in the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And it says here in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man 
And so as you heard that title, that language, the Son of Man, you would probably expect to hear of a Messiah who crashes in with great thunder and glory, purifying the city of Zion, vindicating the people of God, and putting an end to the rage of the nations. But what Mark says is that the emphasis of Jesus' teaching and that the element that they must understand is one of suffering, not glory. That he would be rejected, not welcomed. That he would be killed, not crowned. And he said this plainly. He said it boldly. Now, it's a bewildering and altogether unexpected announcement. You would think it's this crescendo of, you are the Christ. And Jesus begins to teach, I am the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise. You could imagine all of the air being sucked out of the room with that announcement on the heels of Peter's announcement. It's a scandalous thing. Not only does Jesus fail to fit the messianic stereotype, he goes on to define a mission that's really in scandalous contrast to what they assumed. The meaning of his life and mission is not going to be about victory and conquering as they might have imagined, but about rejection and suffering and death. The sort of announcement was so offensive, so unthinkable, that Peter actually pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Matthew says, not so, Lord. No, that is not how it's going to be. And Jesus responds to that rebuke with the counter-rebuke. He reverses the whole conversation and, and aligns Peter's refusal to admit to a suffering Messiah with satanic schemes and plotting. It's not just that you're mildly off the mark, Peter. What you are forbidding is demonic at its core. Meaning, to miss this teaching, Peter, is to miss everything about me. If you don't see this, you've missed everything. You've rightly understood I'm the Christ, But if you do not see what sort of Messiah I am, then you have missed everything. The Son of Man must suffer. Why? Well, the answer to that question gets right to the heart, not only of Mark's gospel, but really to the entirety of Scripture. The necessity of a Messiah who suffers is killed and rises again is really a matter of first importance. The must of what Jesus says has everything to do with the good news of the gospel and the hope of redemption. The Son of Man must suffer in order to accomplish the very deliverance that he has come to bring. The necessity of his suffering, it has everything to do with the nature of the rescue. He must suffer in order to accomplish what he has come to do. Namely, that the glory of redemption, the very purpose for which the Son of Man was sent, involves, must involve, suffering. What sort of Savior is he? We'll answer that with this. What sort of rescue do you need? Is it a liberation from poverty? Is it a liberation from famine? From oppressors? 
from unjust dictators, governors, presidents? What sort of rescue do you ultimately need? No, our problem is much greater than that. It's deliverance from sin, from the very wrath of God against our sin. The Son of Man must suffer and die in order to become the sacrifice for sin, to absolve the justice of God against our sins, to be the substitute for the sacrifice for our sin. And if we have any hope of real rescue from our greatest need, he must suffer, be killed, and rise again. 1 Peter 3.18, For the Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Or how about Colossians 1, verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciled by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The Son of Man must suffer and die because the ransom of our souls requires it. He must. A friend, if, if this sounds strange to you, this sort of language of a Savior who must suffer and die because of something that you have done, that brings about the wrath of God upon it. If this sounds strange to you, let me point out to you that the Bible repeatedly says to you that your greatest problem is not your circumstances. Your greatest problem is not your financial difficulties. It's not your relational problems. It's not even your depression. Your greatest problem is not that you drink too much or that you lose your temper or that you cheat. Your greatest problem is that you've been created in the image of God to reflect His glory, but that you are unable and unwilling to live in obedience to that created order. And because of that inability and unwillingness, it has brought about the just wrath of God against you. Not just what you do, but the very reality that you fail to be who God has created you to be. That is the penalty that we are all under. That is why when we hear in the scriptures that this Savior must suffer and die, that is why the Christians around you get very excited because they are the ones who've begun to understand I deserve to die. But this Savior has just promised that He has come to do the very thing that I need rescue from. He must suffer and die. If He is the Christ, then He must suffer. But notice where Jesus goes. If we are His followers, then we must suffer. Notice how Jesus unpacks this doctrine and the necessity of his suffering and then draws a straight line to the implications. If we're his followers, what should we expect? Or to say it this way, if we call ourselves Christians, what should our lives look like? Well, according to Mark 8, 
First of all, we need to be willing to suffer according to his pattern. Look at verse 34. Suffering according to his pattern. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice how the imperative of what Jesus must do, up in verse 31, impacts the command of how we follow after him in verse 34. The necessity of his suffering is reflected in the necessity of our denial of ourself and taking up our cross. The manner in which he walks, his followers must also walk. That word, let him, that is the imperative. It's literally the same word, must. The Son of Man must suffer. And it would be right to read and to understand this is, let him who would come after me must deny himself. To come after Jesus, to call yourself a Christian, is to follow the pattern that Christ himself lays out. And that pattern, lest if we've just forgotten, is a pattern that's marked by suffering, rejection, and death. Taking up the cross, don't misunderstand that, because that gets Christianized very easily. Put yourself in Peter's sandals. If you would have just heard this Christ say, If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross. That's not a cute euphemism for dealing with earthly discomforts and challenging people. To say, take up your cross under the shadow of Roman oppression in your own country had very real, visible, tangible examples that you could think of when you hear, take up your cross. Very literally, come after me and die. That's the rally speech. We must suffer mindful of the pattern. But he goes on in verse 35. We must suffer mindful of this paradox. Verse 35 through 37. Notice the unexpected realities of this kingdom. There is a great paradox in that saving, attempting to save, actually is going to mean losing for you. And losing is actually going to mean saving for you. It's possible to make great gains in this earthly life and yet forfeit your soul. The paradox of gaining and losing, saving and losing, forfeiting and gaining. Look how this breaks down. Verse 35, whoever would save, means whoever would refuse to follow the pattern and take up his cross. And then the latter part of verse 35, whoever loses, that means taking up the cross and following in the pattern of suffering and self-denial. This is the great paradox. To follow Jesus will mean redefining the very categories and expectations that give shape and value to your life. Gaining everything is no gain at all when it comes at the loss of your soul. We suffer mindful of this great paradox, but verse 38, we must suffer mindful of this great promise as well. Because what Christ says there in verse 38 is, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also 
be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Let's ask the question, ashamed of what? The context would dictate the shame is not generically just of Christ himself, but specifically as Christ reveals himself here, a Messiah who's come to suffer, be rejected, and die. If you are ashamed of that idea of a Messiah, I promise you, you will know greater shame when the Son of Man returns. The urgency of these words should not be lost upon us today because how often are we tempted to downplay the suffering Jesus to the watching world or the neighbor or the co-worker to really talk only about conquering Jesus and the might and the power that comes with him. Who wants to talk about a hero that dies? Who wants to talk about a hero that suffers when he shouldn't have to? But to be ashamed of Christ and his humiliation is only to bring shame and humiliation upon yourself at his second coming. And in laying this out as he does, Jesus cracks open the door for us to make some sense of this relationship between suffering and glory. And this promise that he gives right here, talking about the shame that is here and the coming glory when he returns, it begins to crack open the door so that we can see there is a relationship between suffering and glory. It's probably not at all like I thought, but Jesus, you are saying there is still glory? It's not just all come and die. And this mention of glory is the segue into the emphasis of the next section. It's the anticipation of glory and power. There's not only the necessity of suffering and weakness, but in this section there is the anticipation of glory and power. While the necessity of suffering is most certainly foundational to understanding who Jesus is, that's not the end of the story. That's not all there is. It's not suffering without glory. There is most certainly an anticipation of glory. Look back at verse 1. Notice how it's a familiar glory. See if you pick up on anything that sounds familiar. He said to to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no one, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I'm convinced as we read this portion of scripture, the Mount of Transfiguration, we are meant to hear these Old Old Testament echoes that place this event within a particular context that help us make sense of what we're actually hearing here. From what Mark records, it is clear this is nothing less than the revealed glory 
of Yahweh. Peter has good reason to be terrified because he knew his Old Testament scriptures. To stand before the radiant glory of Yahweh is no small thing. Notice the familiar images and allusions to Moses and Mount Sinai that are here. First of all, the transformation of Jesus's, Jesus and the shining radiance of his clothes and body, it reminds us of the shining radiance of Moses' face as he went up on the mountain in Exodus 34. Also, we know in that account that Moses took three named companions up on a high mountain to meet with God in Exodus 24, and it was upon that mountain that they experienced the presence of divine glory. What do we read there? A cloud covered the mountain. And after six days, Moses went into the cloud, and there God spoke to Moses. Clearly, we are meant to read Mark 9, hearing the context and echoes of Exodus 24 through 34. The revealed glory of Christ here is to sound as a familiar glory that we've heard elsewhere. This Christ is the glory of Yahweh. This Savior is the divine glory that we've been waiting for, longing for. It serves to remind us of the glory of Yahweh that's revealed in the face of Christ. We are reminded that we serve a most glorious Messiah. But it's not just a familiar glory, it's a greater glory. Because notice at the end of this account, verses 7 and 8, Jesus, he appears alongside Moses and Elijah, but the eventual conclusion, they see Jesus only. For all the glory and for all the prominence and for all the importance that Moses and Elijah serve in redemptive history, it is ultimately Jesus alone that Peter, James, and John see. And added to that, we have the voice of the Father that identifies Jesus as my beloved Son, reminding us of God's promise to David to raise up a descendant after him who would establish this kingdom and this throne that would be without end concerning this heir. God says in 2 Samuel 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father, and he will be to me as a son. Also keep in mind Psalm 2, that testifies the same promise of God's anointed one, the Christ, whom he also calls his son, his king, that he sets upon his holy hill, the one who will rule the ends of the earth and rule over the nations with a rod of iron. God intends that these disciples understand the rule of God's Son that's depicted in all of the Old Testament promises will be established in Christ. Despite any opposition and actually in line with his promise to be a suffering Messiah. Suffering and glory. The glory that was given to Moses and to Elijah, it was most certainly glorious but it pales in comparison to the glory of Christ. And then in verses 9 through 13, concerning this glory, there's a preview. It's a preview of glory. A familiar glory, a greater glory, and a preview of this glory. 
What Mark tells us in verses 9 through 13 is that while the disciples were descending down the mountain, they were scratching their heads, to say it mildly. They questioned what this whole rising from the dead bit was about. But nevertheless, they understood some of the implication of what they just saw. They just saw Moses and Elijah. And they're asking literally, okay, Jesus, what did we just see? Not only because of sheer wonder of what was just experienced, but because they kept in mind the scriptural implications of what they just saw. They ask about Elijah, and they ask about the teaching of the scribes, the teaching that said that Elijah would serve to be the signpost of the day of the Lord. When you see Elijah, the day of the Lord is coming. Why did the scribes teach that? Because it's what Malachi the prophet promised in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah, he's not here anymore. Okay, but the Lord's going to send him, and that's going to be our signpost saying that the day of the Lord is here. They go up to the mountain, the cloud, the glory, the voice. There's Elijah. As they descend the mountain, Jesus, we just saw Elijah. Does that mean the day of the Lord is here? And Jesus responds with a helpful clarification, reminding them that the glory that they had just seen on the mountain is essentially a preview a preview of the coming glory, the greater glory. The restoration that Elijah promised to bring about, it's been fulfilled. Mark's already hinted this back in um, chapter 7 and chapter 8, or excuse me, chapter 5, with John the Baptist. That John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord in chapter 1. And he says, verse 13, Elijah, John the Baptist, has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. In other words, yes, the glory that you have seen is a preview of this greater glory, but that glory even still is marked off by suffering. Just as they did to John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, the signpost of the day of the Lord, And he most certainly suffered at the cost of his own life. And so his question or clarification is, and is it then not fitting that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt as well? Glory? Yes. Most certainly. Just as certain as the suffering. He weds the two together, clarifying for these men the relationship between suffering and glory. Now, remember what we asked earlier. If he is the Christ, then what kind of Christ is he? Because how we answer that question not only frames up how we see Jesus and who we see him to be, but what sort of expectations we will have as we follow him. Peter's response to Christ's revelation of suffering. It exposes his misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Not so. And he began to rebuke him. Yes, glory will be the end result, but it is only obtained and comes through suffering. And make no mistake, the distortion of this teaching continues 
today. When we hear glory now, comfort now, power now, transformation now. But it's not just the false teachers out there promoting some version of a prosperity gospel that you might be thinking of right now. The same distortion is found in our own thinking. Examine your life in the past week and see how allergic you are to suffering and how insistent you are upon glory. How often we try and frame up our understanding and expectations of Christianity completely detached from the reality of suffering. But Mark 8 is very clear. Any notion of Christian discipleship that we are going to hold on to, friends, if it's detached from suffering, it is a distortion of the biblical definition of discipleship. It's a distortion of the pattern that Christ has set before us. Or to put it bluntly, if you imagine a life of following Jesus that does not include suffering, pain, disappointment, loss, grief, betrayal, or sacrifice, your idea of Christianity does not reflect the biblical emphasis. It's obvious from the testimony of the book of Acts The apostles following Jesus experienced suffering and quite often brutal death. And the pattern is not unique to the apostles. It's not like once the last apostle died, now it's great for God's people. It's the understood expectation that suffering is actually the pathway to the kingdom of God. Upon suffering, what did Paul go back to do? He went back to strengthen the church And how did he seek to strengthen the church? Buck up, guys. It's going to be great right around the corner. We're finally going to get our day. We're going to be in power. And all that we want will come to pass. No, that's not the sermon he was preaching. In Acts 14, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystria and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying... That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Followers of Christ are to expect to suffer for the name of Jesus and for the gospel, just as Christ teaches here in Mark 8. Let me remind us just some of what our scriptures teach. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, which we love, but also suffer for His sake. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How about First Peter? Read through the apostles' teaching there and note the frequent link between suffering and and glory. It's, it's throughout Peter's writing. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And he goes on in chapter 5, verse 10. 
and after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The repeated pattern of scripture and the emphasis of sound biblical doctrine is suffering now. Glory then. But the problem is, when we collapse these two truths into the same space, assuming that because Jesus suffered, now it's glory. We check that box, let's go. But if we do this, we forget the pattern, don't we? It's normative to walk through suffering as we walk after Christ. Having clarity on this relationship and this emphasis of suffering and glory is one church that we desperately need to lay hold of. Our experience as Christians in America for the past 250 years can be described as one word, anomaly. Compared to the majority of Christian experience, not only presently globally, but throughout church history. As a result of the comforts that we have enjoyed, there is the result that we have this very uncomfortable relationship with suffering in our daily life. Meaning that the ideas of endurance, sacrifice, unmet expectations are considered these strange Museum exhibits that we don't know what to do with. They must be surely from another world because they don't belong in mine. And while we must never despise the advantages and the the myriad of comforts that God and his providence has given to us, we must be aware of the embedded dangers that they bring with them. These comforts and these advantages are a Trojan horse that are filled with all sorts of dangers. And we are foolish if we do not recognize this. Because when we warmly embrace seasons of luxury and comfort and power and begin to expect them, and then we recoil at any idea of suffering or loss or pain or death, we've missed the point. And this confusion, it shows up in so many ways in our our daily life, doesn't it? We imagine wrongly how our lives ought to function as we follow Christ. This confusion over suffering and glory, it shows up in our parenting. What we imagine our job actually to be. Surely it can't be this. It shows up in our relationships. We expect others to serve us. We expect others to love our preferences. and To do whatever they can to make our preferences come about. This confusion shows up in our marriages, imagining that Christ serving his church it must look different than this. There's got to be some greater glory than this. Or submission to him certainly must be more glorious than this. Confusion shows up as citizens, as we're dumbfounded, even enraged that Christians are not given their rightful seat at the table or equal representation in elections or public policy. Where's the glory? 
Christian, the emphasis of our life, the very tone that shapes our parenting, our marriages, our friendship, our covenant with one another, is life through death. The fruitfulness that we long for, that you have been praying for in your parenting, in your friendships, in your marriages, it only comes by the way of death. Consider Christ's words, John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The fruitfulness that we pray for and long for comes by that means. We have every reason, church, to listen to God's Son, just as we saw here in Mark 8. He has now even more glory than he revealed on that Mount of Transfiguration. For he is now in heaven, crowned with glory and splendor. And yet God still says this morning, hear him, listen to him. And the great determinative question that we all must answer, and we actually do answer in our life actions, is who do you say that Jesus is? It's not enough to be able to recite views about him, the views that others hold, whether that be your parents, whether that be your spouse, or even your pastors. You must come to this this inner conviction of his identity to be able to say, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's God's anointed one. And how is he anointed? Well, he's anointed as the prophet to replace our ignorance of God with the knowledge of God. He's anointed as our priest. He's able to take away our guilt for breaking the law of God and bring us to the state of righteousness before him. He's anointed as our king to conquer our sins and to rescue us from all that would harm us. He is the Christ. He's the anointed one. And it's through that understanding when we see his glory as he truly is and the means of his suffering, then we are able to rightly answer by the means of our lives and our profession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, we do ask that you would make clear your word and your announcement to us unmistakable how much we need to hear these Words that are often hard, even foreign to what we know. Lord, we pray that the very pattern of your life and the very description of what you have given, not only who you are, but how you've called us to follow after you. Lord, would you cause that to come to pass and be seen in our own lives? Lord, we lay our lives before you, asking that you would help us to be obedient to the very thing that you've called us to knowing that what you call us to is most certainly possible and that you've united us to yourself. Lord, forgive us and help us 
those myriad of ways that we insist upon glory and we, we get squeamish at any idea of sacrifice. We want the fruitfulness, the sort of fruitfulness that brings you glory and the fruitfulness that remains to be seen in our homes and our church, to be seen in the broader church around us. So Lord, would you help us to have a right vision of who you are that you might shape up and form the right response to how we live as your followers. We ask in Christ's name, amen.